Well, let us pray once again before we get into God's Word together. And Father, you promised that your Word will not return to you empty without accomplishing what you desire and without succeeding in the matter for which you sent it. I thank you for that promise, God, and I pray that right now that you would be faithful as I seek to communicate what is needed for today, and I pray that it will accomplish your purposes, God, to everyone who is here, everyone who is listening on the live stream. We're grateful for, in your love, you revealing your truth to us, because that's what we need for life and for life eternal. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we started our sermon series of Genesis 1 through 11, which is entitled God's Story of Beginnings. And last week was Creation Part 1, so we are continuing in that today. And there's a lot to say, and uh, I am being mindful that we have the Lord's Table as part of our service today, so I'll make this uh, as fitting uh, time-wise as possible. But last Sunday, I kind of ended with a, a bit of a cliffhanger, talking and mentioning terms like gap theory and day-age theory. And um, I think I even mentioned uh, old earth and young earth. And the technical terms are old earth creationist, okay, people who believe that the, the earth and the universe are billions of years old. Um, to be exact, some believe that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. That's the latest quote-unquote science. And that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And, of course, that number has changed uh, over time, but that's what it is right now. Who knows what it will be next year or five years from now. But uh, versus young earth creationist, of which we'll speak on more next week and we'll touch on a little bit today. But also the concept uh, or the principle of theistic evolution, that God used evolution to create the world, including humans over this many millions or billions of years of time. And sometimes it's called progressive creationism. So um, I'm just throwing these terms out there for our, just, uh, our familiarity um, a little bit. And also because we're going to be talking about some of these things, not everything. I wish we could cover everything, but this series would never end if I did that. And so we're going to touch on just, uh, just pertinent things that I think will be helpful and are needed uh, for us. And once again, I pray that Isaiah 55, uh, God's word will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it out. And so all of those things that I mentioned, um, again, can be seen as compromises that the church is making with the world and with the world's wisdom. But I want to be very clear from the outset about a couple things. And I'll, I'll say it in the form of a question. Can someone believe in these teachings, okay, whether it's gap theory or day age or millions and billions of years or whatever, um, these interpretations of Genesis 1 through 11, the Bible, can someone believe in those things and be a Christian? Okay, can one believe that God used evolution to create the world and yet be a Christian? Okay, the answer to that is, you know, we should get the answer from the Bible, Right? Well, the Bible doesn't connect someone's salvation with the age of the earth, right? Because Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. Okay? You will have eternal life. You will be forgiven of all your sins. You will be, become born again and become a disciple follower, believer of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 does not say, if you confess with your mouth that the earth is six to 10,000 years old and believe in your heart that the universe is not billions of years old, you will be saved. Does it? No, it does not. Okay? The Bible says that being a Christian is conditioned on one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way to salvation. And so one can believe, even teach these, these things about Genesis 1 through 11 and millions and billions of years and still be a Christian. 
But, some of you sensed that there's a however or a but in there, right? Does that mean that it doesn't matter what one thinks or teaches about Genesis 1, Genesis 1 through 11, the Bible in general? That it's all fine and dandy to believe in millions and billions of years. It's okay to insert evolutionary teachings into the text. It doesn't matter one way or the other whether you believe in an old earth or a young earth, as long as you believe God created the universe. Within the first couple years, I would say, of me being saved, uh, I did have questions on this and was having a conversation about it with someone who I believed was a more mature Christian. He'd been a Christian for many years. And his wife had attempted to witness to me before I was saved. So after I was saved, I got to talking with them and just was having this conversation. And this person, this man, suggested that it really doesn't matter what Christians think about this. It wasn't really worth arguing over. We all believe the same thing in the end, that God created everything, so what's the big deal? And that was kind of the end of that conversation. Well, to that I say now that it does matter. It does matter quite a bit. And first of all, as Christians, uh, we must be faithful to understand and learn God's word uh, as it is written. We need to be faithful and diligent to understand and learn what God has said in the Bible. He has lovingly given us the truth. And so we have to work hard to understand it from the beginning, from the very beginning, Genesis, right, where we're at right now all the way to the end, which is Revelation. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so that's first of all. Second of all, it matters because it comes down to what I mentioned last Sunday in part one. Okay? It's ultimately a matter of authority, of authority. Who is the authority in our understanding of the beginnings? All of these beginnings that are talked about in Genesis 1 through 11. Are we going to submit and believe first to the authority of Scripture, of God's Word? Or are we submitting to the authority of the teachings of man, of man's wisdom, of so-called science, okay, of which some of these brilliant physicists and geologists and um, just astrologists believe that, as I mentioned last week, nothing created everything. Okay, so it comes down to a, a question of authority and priority. Okay, which comes first? That's what the word prior means, right? What is our priority? Which comes first in our beliefs about everything, but in this case, particularly about the beginning, about the creation of the world. One very critical thing we should understand is where this millions and billions of years perspective comes from. It basically, it came from atheistic and deistic naturalism in the 17 and 1800s, okay, roughly 300 years ago. There existed some, like early church and, and stuff like that. Some people get, have all of that wrong. They think evolution has been around since like the beginning, the early church fathers, but it hasn't. Okay? In the 17 and 1800s particularly, there were people who wanted to explain the fossil record that was being discovered and natural processes, all of that stuff, without God. And this evolutionary theory and thought that came out of it and developed it's developed to the point where people now have accepted it without question. It's taught in the schools not as evolutionary theory, but as, as science, as fact. And so that's, that's what the bottom line is, right? After all, this is what science says. So as an example of this, and we're making our way uh, into Genesis 1, so you'll pardon the introduction here, but... Um, I need to mention a, a representative example, okay? Uh, someone who is very influential or was and still is. He actually passed away um, a little over a week ago. Um, his name is Tim Keller. Does anybody know Tim Keller? Okay, he's a, um, a founder of 
Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Um, he's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he's famous uh, in, in you know, the world of Christendom and even outside of it uh, for apologetics, uh, reaching out to the lost. Um, his first book, I believe, was called Reason for God, and um, it seemed to help a lot of people um, as far as trying to explain um, in a sort of C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity type of way, um, apologetically, uh, what uh, the, the reason for God and Christianity was. And so um, before I just kind of share some things here, uh, I, I just want to say that you know, I'm, not, I'm not judging um, Tim Keller. Um, I do just want to make a quick distinction between false teachers, which the Bible warns us about, and tells pastors that they need to warn others about. False teachers who are preaching a false gospel and therefore leading people not to heaven, but leading people to condemnation and judgment in hell. Okay, that's a false teacher, someone who teaches heresy, who teaches a different gospel than the, the one and only gospel, right? And so um, there's a difference between those false teachers and then teachers who are teaching false things. Okay, there's some teachers in, in the Christian church who are not preaching a false gospel, but they're teaching some other areas of theology that are erroneous, that are not according to God's word, okay? So I want to make sure we understand that distinction, and, um, and so let me share some things and just a, a quote to start with. Um, as Tim Keller has um, written himself uh, speaking about creationism, Okay, about creation. Quote, he says, said, I don't think Genesis teaches that the world was created in six 24-hour days. Evolution is neither ruled in or ruled out at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is the church that he founded, which, by the way, has thousands and thousands of people, and also his influence is um, just within evangelical Christianity large, uh, in a large way. And so um, there's a pastor also uh, in New York City, pastor of Heritage Baptist Church named Matthew Recker. Uh, just want to share some helpful things that he wrote in an article um, in response to uh, Tim Keller's uh, theistic evolution, basically. Super helpful, just really good. And uh, Tim Keller, by the way, wrote a paper called Creation, Evolution, and Christian Laypeople. And uh, this was published on the BioLogos Foundation website. Um, you can find it there if you want. But in it, he makes a, a strong distinction between two things. Okay, one is what he calls evolutionary biological processes. Okay, and the other thing is the grand theory of evolution. So he says people, Christians, everyone must make the distinction between those two things. Okay? So he states, quote, that evolutionary biological processes is the biological mechanism that God used to bring us here, all of us humans here. The grand theory of evolution is pure naturalism that warrants no moral belief in doing good or seeking human rights. So listen, he wants to argue strongly for evolutionary biological processes, but argue strongly against the grand theory of evolution. Okay? For him, this is like a, the middle ground of balance. So he wants to interpret the, quote, book of nature, okay, natural science, which clear, clearly for him teaches evolution, by the book of God. So we interpret the book of nature by the book of God, which sounds good, but then he says, um, he says in an interview that, as an old earth progressive creationist who believes there is a literal Adam and Eve, he thinks that there still could have been evolution involved. Okay? So hopefully this gets cleared up as we go on here. But in that book uh, that he wrote, The Reason for God, um, there's a quote uh, by him, and he's answering to the concerns of this young intellectual man who is really bothered by the unscientific mindset of the biblical teaching that God directly created the world and he did it in six literal days. And so Tim Keller is saying, no, no, no. He's responding to this struggling young intellectual person uh, by saying this, quote, 
Evolutionary science assumes that more complex life forms evolved from less complex forms through the process of natural selection. Many Christians believe that God brought about life this way. For example, the Catholic Church, the largest church in the world, has made official pronouncements supporting evolution as being compatible with Christian belief, end quote. There's, there's lots of problems with a lot of what he said just in that you know, few sentences there. But mainly, this is what I want to bring out. And again, Tim Keller is representative of, of uh, it's not just him. Okay, this is many others who think and believe like he does within Christendom. Um, they equate evolutionary science with objective science. Okay, for him, evolutionary theory is equal to science. Okay, so this leads to theistic evolution, okay, the belief in theistic evolution. So let me quote from Matthew Recker here. He says, Theistic evolution is helpful to Tim Keller for easing the tension between these two authorities, the Bible and secular scientists. For him and those like him, this tension forces people to make an impossible choice between science and faith. Theistic evolution eases the pressure and boom, he can win those who are caught in the middle, like that young intellectual person that was writing to him. Right? But here's the problem. In making that concession, Keller bites the lie of less complex life forms. And there's actually no such thing as life that is not highly and irreducibly complex. He also errs in equating evolutionary theory with science. The fact that some scientists believe in a theory does not make it science. And you'll hear this virtually nowhere else, but maybe in a, in a church that preaches the Bible. Okay? So let me quote Tim Keller again. He writes this, Many Christian believers in Western culture see the medical and technological advances achieved through science and are grateful for them. They have a very positive view of science. How then can they reconcile what science seems to tell them about evolution with their traditional theological beliefs? End quote. So he calls the philosophical assumptions of ever-changing evolutionary theory science, like it's equal with the objective nature of real science. In doing this, he equates theory with science and accommodates secular and unbelieving scientists. So Matthew Recker, the pastor, other pastor in New York, asked this, does this mean that Christians should cave in to what secular scientists say about gender confusion, about climate change, or that there was no global flood, notwithstanding what scripture says on these issues? He goes on. This is the last part of the quote. He says, Creationists should never claim that science and faith are irreconcilable, but rather that evolutionary theory and science are irreconcilable. Did you hear that? It's true that evolutionary theory of millions of years cannot be reconciled with the Bible's teaching. Rejecting this, however, is not rejecting science but rather rejecting a theory and an ideology through which the evidence is interpreted to reconstruct the unobserved, unrepeatable past, which is a lot of what I talked about last week. Okay, the theories of man should always be subject to the authority of Scripture and not the other way around, end quote. Okay, so, so why is this happening? Why do so many within Christendom and influential pastors and teachers uh, having such a, an effect on, on the world? And why is the world thinking having such an effect on the church? Why is there such controversy even uh, within the church, within believers who, who all profess to believe in this book as God's inerrant, infallible, perfect word? Well, it comes down to, again, um, just being accepted uh, being not wanting to be considered as anti-intellectual or dinosaurs or anti-scientific or anti-academic. And, and if you do believe that way, you won't get published in the journals. Okay? You won't have 
you know, uh, credentials, credit uh, amongst the academic elite. Um, you'll be seen as just fundamentalist and narrow. And so it's important for us to stand on the authority of the Word of God and to do our best to not let outside influences, outside ideas, worldly, atheistic even, deistic ideas, control how we interpret Scripture. Okay, our priority, what comes first for us as the authority, is God's Word. So with all that said, um, let us turn to the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we didn't get past verse 1 last week. And today, we are going to cover day 1, day 1, which is Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. So we read the whole chapter and into chapter 2 last week, but today I'm just going to read uh, what hopefully we'll be able to cover today, the first five verses of the whole Bible. Okay? It begins with Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you are able to stand with me as we honor the God of the Word, let us stand and read. I'll read verses 1 through 5. And this is day one, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Please be seated. So, one last important note before we delve into the text here. Um, what is the genre? What is the literary genre of Genesis chapter 1, or even the whole book of Genesis? Hey, is it narrative history or is it poetry? And that's important because it tells us how we're supposed to interpret the, the text, right? Is it to be read plainly, naturally, or is it to be taken figuratively and symbolically? Okay, not necessarily in a straightforward, literal way. And just by the way, Tim Keller, among many others, including uh, Hugh Ross, who also believes similarly about the age of the universe and the earth and, and everything, um, they, they say that Genesis 1 is poetry. And so the problem with that is uh, there's literally no telltale signs of Hebrew poetry in Genesis chapter 1 as a whole. And actually, Tim Keller himself admits this. But he calls it exalted prose narrative. Exalted prose narrative, which uh, I'm not going to argue with that, you know, that, that title uh, for, for Genesis 1. But he says since it is poetry in the form of exalted prose narrative, uh, we cannot impose a literalistic hermeneutic, a literalistic interpretation onto the text. And so um, there's many, many others uh, since that time who would beg to differ, um, just biblical scholars and theologians. Um, one named James Johnson from ICR, the Institute of Creation Research, He's, he just point blank says, quote, Genesis is not Hebrew poetry. Um, Genesis is Hebrew narrative prose. In other words, Genesis is a record of true and accurate history. It's not myth, it's not mystery, it's not mysticism. Okay? There's, there's, there's not any poetic parallelism. Okay? That's one of the telltale signs of Hebrew poetry. Um, almost a, a necessary sign, parallelism, which is used a lot in Hebrew language. And you see it all over scripture in the Psalms and in Proverbs and different areas where poetry is actually used. But um, no hint of any poetic parallelism in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, or in, in fact the whole chapter. And why is that? Why is that? Uh, because Genesis is history. It's narrative history. Virtually all 
of Genesis illustrates what we would expect from historical narrative. Okay, it's careful attention to sequenced events. Okay, simply meaning that this occurred and then something else occurred and then telling you what occurred next and etc. And also inclusion of time and space context information and again that noticeable absence of Hebrew parallelism. End quote. So um, it's just interesting when you dig up all this information but um, Edward J. Young, who is another just faithful biblical scholar, and in particular with the Hebrew, he says Genesis 1 is written in exalted, semi-poetical language. Nevertheless, it is not poetry, despite some people's attempts to twist that, even his words, into saying it's poetry. He calls it semi-poetical language. He, in fact, says Genesis chapter 1 is a document entirely of its own kind, It's like or equal is not found anywhere in the literature of antiquity, in in ancient writings. And the reason for this is obvious. Genesis 1 is a divine revelation to man concerning the creation of the heavens and the earth, end quote. So hopefully we are understanding, we have some good groundwork building upon last week and into now. So Genesis 1 verse 1, once again, in the beginning God created the heavens and and the earth. This is like the theme sentence of the creation account. It's a formal declaration of God's creation of the entire universe, including things that we can see and including the unseen. Okay? So in the beginning is an absolute clause, and it tells us that there were physical elements prior to God's creation. There were no physical elements prior to God's creation. In other words, God created the universe, as I mentioned last week, ex nihilo, right? Which means out of nothing. Out of nothing. Nothing in Genesis 1 or these first verses, uh, or in the first verse even, mentions pre-existent matter. Like matter existed and then God God came in and, and did something to it. That's not how it happened. The first day of creation is not only the beginning of space and matter, it is also the beginning of time. Okay, before the material realm was brought into being, there was, there was no time. Only God's eternity had existence. There will be eventually a state when, Revelation 10.6, right? Time will be no more. So time itself had a beginning, and it will also have an end. Time itself. Doesn't that blow your mind? That time is not going to exist at some point. So Genesis 1.1 gives us the broadest possible picture of God, Elohim, creator God, making the entire universe, the whole cosmos. And the following verses, verses 2 to 31, relate the process which involves six days of formative and also at times creative shaping of this material, spatial mass that he brought into existence. God describes for us, through the writer Moses, how he turns and shapes this unstructured form into this beautiful, incredible home for the pinnacle of his creation, which is the human race. Some commentators have described this process as the turning of a chaos into a cosmos. Okay, just uh, reminds me of our brother Dave and his building of a guest room, uh, additional room in his home, and what that looked like when it started. Just stuff everywhere and tools and materials and equipment and dirt and ground and, and um, <laughs> everything. And Philip had a hand in helping with uh, shaping that and turning that into, you look at it right now, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing what... Um, Someone gifted uh, like our brother can do. But uh, what was the earth like before God starts this shaping process? Look at verse 2. It says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So 
I want us to note three things here which describe what the earth was like to us at that very opening of creation. First, it says formless and void. Formless, that Hebrew word is tohu. Formless and void. Tohu and bohu. Okay, words that um, sound similar and mean similar things. But formless, that mean, that's a word that reflects a state of wilderness or desolation. A state of wilderness or desolation. Isaiah 45, 18 says that the earth was not created with the purpose of being tohu, okay, of being desolate, of being empty. And then bohu, empty, waste, um, it's a similar word, like I said, and it means it was devoid of living things, okay, devoid of plants and animals. It conveys that the earth had not yet been given the ordered form that it has now. Okay, and so those words together, formless and void, describe the earth as not habitable. Okay, if you want a nice six-syllable word for this morning, uninhabitable uninhabitable six right it means not livable not habitable so that's the first thing and then it says and darkness was over the surface of the deep okay we need to go to the text right what is the text saying what is the text describing interestingly at this point there was no light yet existing on the earth okay darkness was over the surface of the deep so the deep indicates that the earth was not made up of a, a firm body originally. Okay? The rest of the verse says that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So the waters, the deep, the deep is simply the, the primal world ocean. So in its original unformed state, the earth is described as not being in a firm or solid condition. It was watery. To quote scholar Wolfgang Capito, he says, it was like an abyss filled with a confusion of undifferentiated water and mud in complete darkness. Okay, so you have to kind of close your eyes and just think about what the earth might have looked like versus what we think of it right now. The third thing from the text, and I mentioned it already, but and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was moving over. Hovering is a good translation of moving over or, or brooding uh, over the word. Those are good words and translations to, um, to think about. So the Spirit is actively moving over this newly formed watery earth. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 <clears throat> uses that word to speak of an eagle hovering over its young to nurture and protect it. Okay, similarly, Genesis 1 verse 2, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing over the surface of the deep, surface of the waters of the earth. And so this is the first reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Okay, the very second verse of the Bible, okay, he is important. right? And it shows us that, that God's hand and his direct presence are intimately involved in the creating and working of this material order that he just spoke into existence, right? This important statement goes against any philosophical deism. Some of you are aware of that, that term, that concept of deism. Like there was a remote deity, right, um, that, that made everything and then just kind of let it go, right, and just let nature take its course and let things happen. No, against that... Revealed here is that God's divine presence was hovering or brooding over the waters. He's in direct charge of the whole process from the very beginning, from the get-go. He's bringing shape and life and form. Uh, one theologian calls it an intensified and, and vitalized type of vibration. Okay, imparting of his energy to organize the primeval matter. And so I want to take a brief pause for what I mentioned earlier and what I mentioned last week about the gap theory. Okay, some of you have heard of the gap theory, yes? All right, just to be quick about it. Um, the gap theory is basically reading into the text okay, something that is actually from quite outside of the text. 
It refers to a supposed gap okay, of millions of years between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. So this theory um, just, uh, it kind of goes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then millions and millions and millions of years passed, and then the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, etc., etc. Okay? So this gap theory, it, it goes back to, as Douglas Kelly puts it in his great um, work on Genesis, it goes back to the uh, uh, evangelical theologian and church statement, statesman of Scotland, okay, Dr. Thomas Chalmers. This was back in the early 19th century. And um, at that time, everyone, okay, the church included, 19th century, right, 1800s, uh, they were under pressure from the intellectual community, which claimed irrefutable proof for vast ages of the world as well as the existence of fossils, which were supposedly much older than the biblical Adam. Okay, so instead of thousands of years old, millions and millions. Dr. Thomas Chalmers proposed inserting a gap of millions of years between those first two verses of Genesis to accommodate those eons of earth history with their fossils into the traditional biblical story of beginnings. Okay, and by the way... Just Bible teacher uh, J. Vernon McGee and uh, the Schofield Reference Bible all promotes this, this gap theory. So it holds that verse 1 recorded the original creation and that the original creation was ruined by God's judgment due to Satan's fall from his holy angelic status. So this judgment wiped out the first earth and it left a thick layer of sedimentation containing prehistoric fossils. So the argument for the vast, long earth ages, which are claimed by 19th century uniformitarian geologists, um, they could be safely accepted without threatening the integrity of the Genesis account in the following verses. Okay, so it's, it's Bible people, it's, it's churchmen like Thomas Chalmers, and others who are trying to make this outside teaching fit into what Scripture plainly says. Okay, So supposedly, uh, Douglas Kelly writing here again, verse 2 gives a picture of a judged, ruined cosmos. Okay? So they're translating without form and void to be like something that's been destroyed. right? And then verse 3 conveys a recreation or restitution of this ruined universe and earth that, that God destroyed because of Satan. And so this time, starting in verse 3, it's to be populated by, repopulated by humankind okay, rather than by angels. So gap theory would actually set the beginning of the creation week in verse 3 rather than verse 1. Okay? And this would be contrary to what Jews and Christians had always understood okay, until roughly that time. 1800s. So, again, this is what happens when the world's authority in the name of so-called science trumps the authority of God's word. And we'll say more on related matters next week when we talk more about old earth and young earth and just um, needing to get into that as we talk about days two through six. But con continue in uh, chapter one here, verse three. Then God said... Okay, so then, right, that's an important word because, again, sequential markers that say something happened and then something happened next. Okay, then God said, day one, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, incredibly, God speaks. God's voice is unspeakably powerful, if I can put it that way, right? Hebrews 4.12 just brings to mind Hebrews 4.12. His word is living and active, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no one like God. Okay? I, I can't even fathom what light is. And during our care groups a few Wednesdays ago, our, our physicist, scientist in, in our church, our sister Eileen, she was uh, just kind of just trying to dream, imagine what light is, even with all of her education and knowledge. 
and um, just not even having a, a glimpse of that. So maybe in heaven uh, in the future. But God just says, let there be light. And there it was. And he creates it, speaks it into existence just by the power of his word. And he made it up. Whatever exactly light is, God made it up. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that God himself is light, right? Um, uncreated light, in fact. You can go to John eight twelve. you can go to 1 John 1, verse 5, you can go to Revelation 21, 23. But here at the beginning, he commands forth created light into the darkness. Okay? Just a word, a mere word. I'm actually two words in the Hebrew and four words in English, but you get what I'm saying. Just the words and light breaks forth into a dark, formless, empty world. So, again, God doesn't tell us what exactly this light is. He doesn't tell us the particulars, um, what light this was before he placed the sun in the sky, right? The sun was not created yet. That's not until day four. Um, So this was not a natural light, it would seem. Some rabbinic writings believe it was the, as they put it, effulgent splendor of the divine presence. The New Testament agrees that it was reflective of God's presence, okay, more specifically in the person of Christ. Okay, John 1, verses 1 through 5, you can jot that down if you want. I'm not going to take time to read it. John 1, 1 through 5, also Colossians 1, 16. And I might have mentioned this last week, but in case anyone thinks that the idea of light existing independent of the sun, that that idea like makes no sense, I remind you, Revelation 22, verse 5, the last book of the Bible. Revelation and last chapter. 22, verse 5, this is in the eternal state. This is God's promise and God's truth. He says, There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Why is that? Yeah, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. God himself is the light. And so there's not going to be any need for any sun. So if not in the eternal state, why not in the first few days of creation? To quote John Calvin, he said, he wrote, Therefore the Lord, by the very order of the creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light, which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon, end quote. And I ask you, dear church, is, is that too difficult for the almighty creator, the Lord our God? No, it's not. So moving on to the next verse, verse 4. It says, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness and just uh, the NASB doesn't reflect this, um, but there could be an and before uh, the beginning of that verse. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And so this is a particular Hebrew construction. It's a fundamental feature of Hebrew narrative. I'll just put it that way. Okay? When it, it's a wow consecutive, right? Um, when, it, when it has those things, it shows that this is a, a narrative. It points to the fact that these are events that took place in sequence, okay, one after the other. So uh, just clear clues again that this is narrative prose, narrative history, and should be interpreted as such. Um, Second thing we want to see here, that in verse 4, he said it was good. It was good. It appears seven times in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, six times as good, plus the one time, where it says, very good, right? Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and lastly, verse 31. Okay, some of you might have heard that the number 7 is often for emphasis in Hebrew, um, symbolizing completion and fullness. Okay, the seventh time that it's found in Genesis chapter 1, of course, in verse 31, it's very good. So it accentuates the entire chapter, the entire account the entire narrative story here, saying that all that God had made was not just good, but 
very good. So creation is good because the creator is good. The works of a good creator can only be good. And so, again, we'll talk more next week about it, but millions and millions of years and a fossil record that comes before the creation of Adam and Eve means that there was death. And if there's death before Adam and Eve sinned, that contradicts what the scripture says. And death is not good. And there's fossils that that show just animals eating each other and and just um, disease and all sorts of uh, violence and suffering and uh, all the things that come with death. That contradicts what the Bible says, that it wasn't until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden after all this that death entered into the world. So Augustine says, quote, Therefore, because God is all-powerful and good, he made everything exceedingly good, end quote. So last thing to note here in verse 4, it says that God separated the light from the darkness. So we want to note that that verb to divide, badal in Hebrew, it's used five times in Genesis chapter 1 of God's creative activity. And that, that's something that we sometimes miss, kind of uh, neglect to, to note that. Separation of natural phenomena was an expression of God's creative activity, his creating. In verse 4 and verse 18, it says that he separated, he divided the light from darkness. And then in verses 6 and 7, which we'll hit next week, he separated the waters below from the waters above. Okay, that's an important detail in these first few days of creation, right? And in verse 14, once again, he separated day from night. And also, um, without using that specific word, the idea of separation is also indicated um, in the creation of land on day three in verses nine and 10, all right? So just something to tuck away in the back of our minds uh, as we approach that next week. But verse five, the last verse of our text this morning, says... God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, one day. So God names the objects of this day one creation. He names them. And so um, somebody just, again, a Hebrew scholar noted the prepositions that are attached to the words day and night in the Hebrew. It's called the Lamed preposition. And so he says a a possible translation of this is that God called to the light day and to the darkness he called night. So God is is naming his creation. And so two things to bring out um, in in that observation. The first is that the fact that God names these very first things on day one of his creation is significant. It shows that without a name... Things don't really have being. They don't have character. And we all know the Hebrew practice, as we read the Old Testament, of giving names that fit the individual characters of the people, right? Um, or per, their personalities. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 20. Genesis 4, verse 2. Genesis 25, 25. Uh, Jacob and God naming, renaming Israel. Okay, that's a, a Hebrew practice. And some of us even... Uh, as we just give names to our children, sometimes think of characters or characteristics and uh, attach that to their names and name them that uh, for particular reasons. So in the creation account, God's naming of the created objects certifies their existence. It gives them essence. Without names, they, they don't have any real being. And so I'll just ask you, does anyone here know anyone without a name? I mean, some people try to change their names, and I remember a musician from years ago changed his name to a symbol, so nobody knew what to call him after that. But in any case, um, that's one thing. Being an essence is part of uh, a name. And then the second thing, which I think some of us know here at at Faith Bible Church, um, there's the matter of authority once again. Right, The one who gives the names to things are the authority over the things or objects 
that are being named. So Adam was given the assignment to name the animals, right? So it signifies and shows us that uh, man has, has authority over uh, animals as God designed. And so next um, it says there at the end of the verse, there was evening and there was morning, one day. So this first day, day one, uh, some have translated it, uh, it began with the entrance of light. It ends with the departure of darkness. And uh, just when you read that, just very plainly, very naturally, it, it, we see that day is structured just as we structure them today. A day having a, a morning and an evening. And we should notice also that there are two descriptions of day. Okay, one referring to the light. Okay, let, um, God called the light day. And the second is referring to evening and morning, right? Which would reflect a 24-hour period. So God called the light day, and he called the one day evening and morning. So this is our clue about a normal 24-hour period. Okay, and um, we're going to see in, in the, the verses ahead six times for six days, chapter 1, verse 5, Verse 8, verse 13, 19, 23, 31. This is a repeated summary formula defined as a numerical day. And so um, let me just give you an interesting uh, comment here by Warren Wiersbe. He says, when speaking of a 24-hour day, the Jewish people said evening and morning, okay, rather than morning and evening, because their days started with sunset, not sunrise. Isn't that interesting? Thus, sunset on Thursday evening ushered in Friday, and sunset on Friday ushered in Saturday, the Sabbath day, end quote. So it's interesting that um, I mentioned J. Vernon McGee before, who was an evangelical, just otherwise, you know, overall solid Bible teacher of yesteryear. But he, he holds to the gap theory that I um, said before. But he also says, quote, God was not referring to long periods of time here, but to actual 24-hour days, end quote. And then uh, another theologian, more recently, so helpful, his name is Gregory Lint. He writes that, quote, the reference to the evening and morning shows that the creative acts were distinct and separate from each other and were not part of a gradual evolutionary process. Evening indicated that God was through with that creative act, Morning indicated that God was ready to begin the next one. So that's very important, end quote. That's very important to, um, to note that. Uh, regarding the word day, okay, yom in the Hebrew, uh, the fact is that that term, okay, yom with, a, with an ordinal, with a number, okay, paired with a numerical adjective like first or second or third, etc., like it says one day here, um, Paired together, it, it means 24-hour days whenever you see that construction anywhere in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, we have to understand that clearly. That's very, very important. Um, and the normal understanding of even Exodus 20, verse 11, of the fourth commandment. Okay, this is uh, Exodus 20, verse 11. Moses writes, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 11. So we're not, as God is giving the pattern for, for human being, for human life, uh, to work six days and to rest on the seventh, um, it, it cannot be misinterpreted and misconstrued to, to possibly mean that these are, those days could mean millions of years okay, or just untold eons. Okay, which, again, we'll talk a little bit more. That's what day-age theory is, right? That these days in Genesis chapter 1 are not literal 24-hour days, but they could be thousands or uh, however many, many years. So, so there's going to be uh, more on all this next week in part 3. I invite everyone to be back for it. And um, we're hoping to cover uh, just the rest of the days of creation next time. But to lead us into our 
our observance and our worship of communion and the Lord, Lord's table. Uh, I want to remind us once again um, how fascinating it is to think. I mean, did you expect that light was the very first thing that God would create on day one? Okay, after he created the space, mass, time, universe, that light would be the very first thing that he created, that he brought forth, that he spoke into existence. Well, I think it's um, interesting and just so amazing of God uh, to, to do that. And um, Revelation 4.11 once again tells us that God is the creator of all the universe and uh, since he did create everything by his will, um, everything in creation, as Dave read from Psalm 148, is to praise and live for the glory of God. Everything in all of creation, in the entire cosmos, is, is to, to give praise and worship and attention and affection to God. And so as we consider that, um, I'm going to end with this and lead us into our communion time. John Curid, who is a very good, uh, again, biblical um, interpreter and commentator of Genesis 1, he writes that we should also consider that the creation of the world was a pattern or paradigm for the creation of the Christian. That is to say, God's breaking of light into darkness was a model of his saving work of opening our darkened hearts with the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a, end quote, I think that's a fair parallel. And just from the beginning, from the very beginning, uh, we have hints of the gospel. And obviously we're going to get into that more as we get into Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 especially. And um, just uh, talk about that first gospel that's found in Genesis chapter 3. But only God, who is the eternal, almighty word, who is the uncreated light and life. Only he is able to speak light into the darkened, depraved human soul. And this goes for the smallest child who understands the gospel and to the most powerful, greatest king of, of history. Only God is able to speak light and life into a darkened, unbelieving soul and and give it a new birth, which Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. And he says, for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be what? You must be born again. Okay? Obviously, he doesn't mean physically born again, but he means you need spiritual new life. You are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the salvation of your eternal soul. And God tells us that. He reveals that truth to us because he loves us and he knows what's going to happen to sinners if they continue to reject him, if they continue to turn away from the truth and continue to live not for the one true creator, God, of the universe, who is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and rather lives for themselves and neglects and ignores and treats the God of glory as if he doesn't matter. Because that's what every unbelieving person is doing if they don't submit their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so um, the same one who turned uh, the chaos of and the, just the emptiness and the voidness of, of the first created world and, and earth into and formulating, as we'll see in this next six days, into this beautiful home uh, for, for humans, He's the one, same one who, who can turn the chaos of sin, the confusion and depravity and depression and just the, the mixed up feelings and things that we see in, in all over the place in our world. Only he can turn that into a new creation in Christ. And he promises, he promises, the one Jesus promises, the one who is the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me, whoever believes in me, will never walk in the darkness again, but will 
will have the light of life. So that's the promise of the Lord Jesus. And then I'll, I'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Listen, the, the Apostle Paul writes, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So he is the only one who can give you new life, and he invites you. He calls you. In fact, he commands you. If you haven't submitted your heart and your life to Jesus Christ and believed on him for the forgiveness of your sins and trust that his death on the cross has paid for everything that you've done wrong, even though he never did anything wrong, he was the innocent one taking your blame and your guilt and your punishment, he promises that everyone who believes in him will be forgiven, have their sins wiped away, canceled, and you'll be credited with his righteousness. God will declare you and see you as, as righteous, as acceptable. And those who confess Jesus as Lord with their mouth and believe that God has raised him from the dead, he's a living Savior. You believe that, that he's, he's alive even today. You will be saved. Therefore, verse 13 of Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord like that will be saved. That's a guarantee. It's a promise. And I invite you this morning to come, believe, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. You will not regret it ever, ever. It promises joy and eternal peace with God forever. So that will lead us into our communion time. That's the very message, that's the very truth that we are celebrating this morning as we come to the table. And Jesus himself uh, gave this ordinance. Okay? He's decreed that the church, believers, if you're not yet a believer, I would kindly, gently ask you not to take communion this morning. If you're not sure of your salvation or not, I would love to speak with you after our service um, or after just any time. But um, I, would, I, would, I would encourage you not to take communion if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus today. Um, but even if you are, God gives us specific directions uh, to take this in a manner worthy, worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel, not irreverently, not carelessly, not having not dealt with our, our sins uh, that we've committed this past week, this past day, this morning, and so we do want to take just a few moments to have time to do that for those of us who are, who are going to be partaking. But uh, what a precious privilege and joy it is for, for us to commune together with our Lord in this special time and to commune with one another um, as, we, as we do this spiritual ordinance that Christ commanded. So I'm going to give just a few moments for us to go before the Lord, whatever spiritual condition you find yourself in this morning. And then um, Joe Vega Sr., I'll invite you now to come and just be uh, prepared for um, when we start this process. And uh, we'll guide it uh, pew by pew. But let's take a few moments just, moments just to go before the Lord and um, just with anything that's, that's on our hearts and considering the message that we heard today. Heavenly Father, as I thanked you earlier, for your promise of your word to go out and accomplish the purpose for which you sent it to go out and it will not return void and empty. I thank you, God, for the promise, precious promise also, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And, Lord, even in this brief time, brief moments that we've had, uh, I pray, God, that um, we, we truly have repented of any known sin, which means to acknowledge to you that it is sin, first of all, and that we need to turn from it, and we, we do turn from it, and we turn back to you. And I pray, God, that even in the days leading up to our, our time this morning, have been faithful for our Faith Bible Church folks, brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, that this is a uh, time affirming that and um, 
just experiencing the, the goodness and the mercies and the, the sweetness of your forgiveness and just being restored in the circle of your blessing and fellowship with you. Thank you so much, God, for your patience with us, your long-suffering, and once again, God, for continuing to work in us by your Holy Spirit to make us more like your Son and to separate us from our sins more and more and, and unto holiness and, and righteousness and love and goodness. Um, you're so faithful, God, to do that. And just even when it hurts, even when it feels hard, um, we're grateful. And we're grateful for this time to um, remember our Savior and his work on the cross for us, his sacrifice, his love, his deep, deep love, and the fact that he rose again and his victory over sin and winning it for us. And so, God, I pray that um, as we take this time of of communion as you've commanded us. Uh, it would be uh, a wonderful, special remembrance, time of unity with you and with one another, and uh, a joyful celebration of so much grace that you've poured out on us in the face of Christ to your glory. So thank you, God, uh, for this time and for the just, um, opportunity you've given us uh, to celebrate communion today. In Jesus' name, amen.